is Tap In Time, a Chapman Stick podcast. Whether you've played the instrument for years or are just curious, if it's stick talk you're looking for, this is the place. So come along and stay a while. Hello and welcome to the Tap In Time podcast, episode number five. I'm Victor. I'm Gene. And I'm Rod. I'm Claire. What? Huh? I think we got the Zoom bombed or something. <laughs> hey, Claire's here. <laughs> here with us on the line, we have Claire Steger joining us. And uh, I guess the background is that yesterday, Gene and I were chatting a little bit with Claire and... Begging. You know... Begging. Begging. <laughs> Begging, <Please>. pleading, <laughs> twisting her arm. And uh, we asked Claire if she could join us today. And she has gotten out of bed way before she normally would have <laughs> and joined us. And so before we start interrogating Claire, really quick, a little bit of background. When this podcast was first conceived and we were first trying to talk through it and figure out what it would look like, Claire was actually there from the beginning, helping us work through some of these decisions. And so she's actually had a pretty large role to play in getting tap in time off the ground. And so we finally managed to get her in here uh, to participate in today's discussion. You want to tell them what actually happened? (laughs) (laughs) What actually actually happened? happened? I'm I'm trying to create drama just because of like... Flash, breaking news, you know, like Claire puts the band back together. (laughs) (laughs) So let me just say a little something about Claire Steger. One of the first people that I saw play a classical piece in front of a room full of stickers at the Freehands Academy in 2013 and just blew my mind. And so I'm so happy that you chose to join us. And uh, I can't wait to hear, you know, get a little background on you. Well, I am happy to be here. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been part of planning with you guys, and I kind of, you know, you guys are being nice. I kind of bailed out. Honestly, the the state of the world was a little overwhelming, and I just needed to take some time. But I'm happy to be here now. And I, I was thinking it's it's kind of maybe apt that if this is where we're talking about Bach, that I'm joining in because Gene, you might remember somehow this all started with us wanting to just. Talk about Bach. I don't know how long yeah. ago that was that we started Skyping pretty regularly. And then I was too added... tired of crying alone. <laughs> 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 crying alone in a corner. So I, I feel like this whole, this whole vibe of just chatting about Bach kind of started. How long ago was that? That's been a few years now. At least three. I don't know right? how long. At least three, yeah. So, so that yeah. was always fun. So maybe it's apt that I join in on Bach again. And I'm, I'm happy to be here. You started shortly, like before, like 2013. Is that when you started playing? I got my first stick in 2012, January. Yeah. And there was a whole like thing with going back to school and wanting to use it for research. And it wasn't like, I want to play a stick. It's like, I want to use it for research. Well, not research. I wanted to play it. But yeah, I went and got a master's degree. That was looking back, maybe not the wisest choice to learn a completely new instrument and get a master's degree at the same time. But I managed. <laughs> <laughs> and yet here you are. The, the thing I survived. I got my master's degree. <laughs> the thing I was hoping to do and why I got the stick is that I do a lot of stuff with electronics. I work a lot in music technology and I've played around a lot with alternate controllers and 
I'm a traditionally a, a classical pianist and keyboard player, and, and I got into interactive music, and that's what I pursued with my master's degree, uh, interactive performance. So using software and things to kind of manipulate what I do. And at the time, I'm not sure what pointed me to the stick, but it seemed like the perfect instrument for it because I could get two different, you know, the two different sides I could process differently. And then I got, I actually have dual MIDI, so I use that for stuff too. Um, so it actually really worked out, and I'm very happy. Well, how did you hear about the stick? I don't remember. 11 bigs? What, what, what was the... I was a big Peter Gabriel fan. I mean, I mean, I still am, but so I had definitely heard of the stick before. Uh, and I think as a keyboard player, you know, gu- guitar just never made sense to my brain. That whole third, I, could, I can play chords, but trying to play uh, melodies on a guitar, my brain just can't get through that third in there. Right. And and I think for the longest time, I never looked at the stick, really the tunings. I just assumed it was like a guitar. And like I said, I, I don't know what prior, right at the end of 2012, got me to look at a stick, but... When I looked at it, it was just enlightening, this whole like mm-hmm. symmetry of the fourths and fifths. It's like, it's very mathematical and beautiful and the way the fourths and fifths work and the symmetry. I mean, just just from a theoretical standpoint, it, it's really just an amazing thing. And it, that, that piece of it really clicked for me. Nice. And now you work in the music industry, in the education industry as well. I do. I work at Berklee College Music. Right. Uh, and you work in facilities or managing? Yeah, I, I oversee the Boston campus technology facilities, the labs and studios there. She's, so, she's a director and she's like, oh yeah, I work there. I work there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's a big family Let's over there. We all, we all work together. Around, it's, a team, it's a team effort. Yeah, it's fun. It keeps me busy, usually. Right. And right now you're working from home most of the time? Yeah, yeah. So catching up on websites and admin stuff. We're unfortunately, our facilities are closed right now. So looking forward to when we can reopen and have students back. A great time to do a podcast, I tell you. Is it? Yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> yeah, we should get on with that. <laughs> yes, oh, let's, let's, yeah. talk, let's talk podcast. Okay, so we'll... Thanks, Claire. It's nice to get to know you. So why don't we go ahead and we'll dive into some music. see that video that Rob Gellner put up a few days ago? Uh, I think it was yeah. the uh, the prelude in C minor. Man, yeah. That thing rocked. That guy. That guy. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, okay, I'm going on eBay right now. I don't know if you saw my post on the stickers where it prompted a Wile E. Coyote video where it was just like, ah, <laughs> oh, get it, you know, just like... Just me throwing my stick from the tallest cliff in the canyon and just watching it to all the way down to the bottom of the rocky canyon. You smash into a million pieces because of Rob Gellner. You know how long it took him to do that uh, that recording? About two weeks, because two weeks ago he said to me, well, I've, I started playing it, then I forgot. 
and I asked him, well, Rob, you should do a video of that one too. You should, you should, you should. So I bugged him to, to do it and I said, okay, I'm going to try and pick it up again. Two weeks later, he sends me the audio file. He says, well, I'm just editing the video. This is the audio. And it's like, what? That was two weeks ago. So <laughs> that guy. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> Rob Gellner, that guy. Session number five. Yeah. <laughs> Put the stamp on it. <laughs> yeah, you know, we've we've included Rob in some of the past Bach discussions, at least one or even two. So there's a, a golden opportunity for Tap and Time to, to kind of get in his head about how he did it. And one of the things that I like about Rob is he's also a phenomenal trumpet player. And um, kind of the, the light that he's in right now or the kind of the, the gig that he's in right now, you know, they, they encourage him. You know, they give him a song where he gets to play a stick on one or two of the pieces, I think. And that was really nice. And he loves to play Bach. And uh, I'm also kind of, I don't know if you saw my question on the stickest also, you know, it's like, hey, how did you do it? And he uses a K-Mix, which was interesting to know. Yeah, because Gene, around here, you're Mr. K-Mix. It just, it's so easy. I love it. It works. And now that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> He's sponsored by K-Mix. <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah, the prelude C. um he gets a, a really good sound. Now, is he, he's doing a, the SG-12 or... Yeah, he did it with the SG-12. Maybe, Rod, before we move on to, to why we play the stick, or why we play Bach on the stick, rather, tell us a little bit about the mixing process, because that was like such a great little piece for the community to hear. Well, it was really simple, actually. He just sent me the two tracks, the stereo tracks, and I just kind of EQ'd it, and that was it. And just a little max mixing and mastering, but it's not really mixing, it's just mastering, because it's... It's, it's quite simple. So two tracks, left and right. And he asked, actually asked him to send me the tracks with his effects and without uh, any effects so I, we could, you know, see where it goes and uh, how it sounded. And eventually we we opted to use his own effects. So um, it was super simple. And um, it, so it sounded great already. So there was not really much to do to be done with it. So. A nice little collaboration, though, certainly, you know, and... Yeah, I had no idea that you had helped him with that. Who better to get to mix your Bach piece than Rodrigo Serrao, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> really? No, I, I talk a lot with Rob. He's a friend, so it's someone that I'm always uh, talking with, and we're always exchanging ideas and you know pushing each other. So you try this one and, and exchanging, I don't know, scores and stuff like that. So it was just natural to take a listen to this and see what you think, and you know, a fresh pair of ears. Mm -hmm. So it kind of works like that. He's also right. got the second invention in his pocket. Like, I'm just, it's like blue steel. I'm like, man, you got to lay blue steel. Lay that look on us, Zoolander, you know, and he's, he's, he's just waiting. I'm just waiting for him to show me the, the second invention because that's one that I started, and I, I can't wait to hear him nail that one as well. He has a bunch. Of, he has a very big list of Bach things he, want, he wants to do. I won't, he wants to do the book, man. He wants to do all <laughs> yeah. 16 from what I, I understand. I won't open up too much about it, but he, he, he has a big list of things he wants to do. So. Gotcha. That guy. Well, I think this is a perfect segue to talk about why why we play Bach, right? So I'll start, and then maybe, Claire, I'd love to, to get your perspective afterwards. I kind of grew up as a kid. Mom listened to um, a lot of classical. She liked to listen to guitar as well. She was a big And so that was kind of what was playing around the house, certainly. Um, I loved the sound of the harpsichord. And so that was one of the things that kind of stuck with me. And I remember having a cassette 
for those of you who remember cassettes. Ooh. And it had all the two-part inventions on it. And I remember just listening to that, just like in my car, driving to City College, just like, oh, this will be okay. This will be good to listen to. And um, it really is one of the first things that I wanted to play on the Chapman stick. And I realized very quickly that it was, that, you know, if you think of it in terms of an exercise, which I actually do now in retrospective when I'm playing like the first invention or I'm playing any number of the minuets in G, that it feels like an exercise, especially when you were in like one minuet and then the second minuet in like the minor key, you see these motifs kind of arrange and counter melodies and expositions and all these different kind of terms that we have for the various different parts of Bach pieces. But I love the way everything fits together. I'm a big Lego fan too. So the way it comes together and the way it... Oh, wow. Um, Audio Legos, yeah. that's like another I'm not one done with of Lego your yet. analogies. <laughs> your analogies. Yeah. <laughs> it fits together so nicely, right? So anyway, so that's, you know, I suppose everyone's got their own kind of reason for it. Now, I'm a bassist and guitarist guy, so when I moved over to it, it wasn't quite as natural. And so there's a lot of work, but um, it, maybe I've mentioned it before, what I love most about the stick is the left hand and the uniqueness of the the fifths in the left hand and the way it comes together. And um, one of the, and we'll, we'll talk about this, um, is, is one of the basic principles that I've found is that vertical motion in the left hand and horizontal motion in the right. And that, to me, was appealing as a bassist, you know, just like, a, I just like that exercise anyways. I like playing Bach, I like the, the it's, it's neat. And also, it, he'll make you a great bass player too. You'll see how he inverts things and and how he has these these musical ideas that, are really the same chord over and over again. It's just inverting things and varying the, the rhythm of things. So what drove you to Bach, Claire? Well, it's interesting because I guess I should say one of the things that really made me decide to get a stick was um, Guillermo Cetus has this amazing video on YouTube. He, he plays the Pasigalia in C minor, uh, which he has on, his, on one of his albums. He plays it live with a looper. And so he starts, you know, the, the Pasigalia is fairly repetitive. It's a Pasigalia. But just the way he layers things and, and he's like, the piece builds and then he breaks out an Ebo. And, and it's like, it was just such an amazing piece of music to watch. Just the mastery of the instrument and the mastery of the tech that he's using to make it happen. Like this, just, it's just a looper, but it's like he makes it work so well. That was he's one of the videos that was like, oh. Yeah. You've got to see this one, Vic. Seriously. It is amazing. It's such an amazing video. I I still rewatch it all the time. So so anyway, that that's one of the videos that got me really interested in getting a stick. Um, as far as playing Bach, I will say, as as a student of classical piano, I've played most of the inventions on piano, and it's not like I have this huge desire to like find out all about Bach. But I I feel his music is just so you can learn so much from playing it. Especially with the stick, you know, box music, you can work on your melodic playing, whether that's the left hand or the right hand. You can really work your harmony chops if you study the music and knowing where, where the music goes. It really works on your independence, depending on what music you're playing. So I, I feel like it really covers so much. And it's, it's kind of beautiful music anyway. Oh, yeah. 
And on some level, if you're trying to perform, like people respond to it. People know it's it's sort of a pro and con. Like people really know those pieces. So on, on the one hand, they appreciate it. On the other, you really have to have it down yeah. to perform it because people know the second oh, yeah. you slip up. So it's sort of a two-way street there. But those kind of like, I, I just feel like as a a method of I mean they're, they're beautiful pieces. They're fun to play, but as as a method of study, they're really interesting. Yeah, for sure. you Vic what drove you to into the the warm embrace of Bach well I was not nearly as direct or decisive in my interest because I mean I'd heard a lot of the Bach pieces you know like uh, invention number 13 was part of an Atari computer commercial back in the 80s and we've all heard Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring and all the other pieces that are well known but I just wanted to learn a classical piece uh, on stick after I'd had it for a year or two and so I'm not sure how I chose it, but I chose the minuet in G major from the notebook mm. of Anna Magdalena Bach. And I learned it. And then I put a video up. And about two weeks later, Gene sends me a note, you know, saying, Hey, Claire and I are Skyping because, you know, of Bach. And, you know, somehow I must have had you fooled that I was really a Bach aficionado. <laughs> so I joined you guys and, oh, hey, a two part invention. I'll try this one. And so that was what kind of got me going on invention okay. number eight. And that is just such a cool piece. You, you actually finished yours. I, I haven't. <laughs> well, I've heard, you, I've heard you play the 13th. You just haven't recorded it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, this is, sorry, I, I, sorry to interrupt, but it's one of the downsides, I think, of Bach or classical music. Like, if you don't play it for a while, <sighs> it just goes away. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah. I had it, yeah. I finished the 13 and I never recorded it. And now it's like, it's harder to relearn it even. So, sorry, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, please. Oh no no that was that was great so feel for you so there's this gentleman who has a YouTube channel uh, maybe you've heard of Rick Beato and he does all these you know what makes this song great and a bunch of theory mm. he's really kind of cool well normally I watch his videos because he'll do a, what makes this song great on a band or a song that I've liked like Toto Rosanna or you know Kansas or Rush or Led Zeppelin he does a, you know all all sorts of stuff you know Metallica Tool Boston whatever well. Then he mm. throws out this video, what made Bach great? And he gave some examples of some chord voicings and he'd play them and he'd talk about them a little bit. And some of them were things that he did and nobody else did them. And now in the 20th century, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, people started picking them up again, you know, and started using them and stuff. So he was basically way ahead of his time. And, and as I'm watching this little video, I fig I'm figuring out that, well, maybe this is why I like progressive rock. Yeah because it uses a lot of influences of the great classical uh, composers and, you know, among them, J.S. Bach. Sure. Now, uh, you know, I saw Rodrigo play uh, in his video, the uh, Prelude in C Major, a few months ago. And, and after I got my new stick oh. and I wanted to, you know, what was the, what's the first okay. new song I'm going to try and learn? Well, I think I'll try and learn that Prelude in C Major. And, you know, it okay. looks simple, but it's got its... It's got its elements that are kind of challenging and how to finger it. Oh, it's it's one of those things where, you know, it's easy enough a child can play it. It's hard enough <laughs> an adult won't be able to play it properly, you know. After five years, I still uh -huh. don't play it as good as I should. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's true, actually. Mm. 
and I'm, I'm talking for too long here, I think, but when I was learning the eighth invention, I started out by listening to it on a YouTube video, watching someone play it on the piano. And they would take about a minute to run through it. And, you know, watching someone play that on the piano is pretty darn impressive. So mm. I watched a few of those and then I went to learn it. And like six or eight months later, I'd been playing it, you know, pieces of it at some tempos, other pieces at other tempos. And I was starting to feel a little bit self-conscious because, wow, I'm playing it awfully slow. And then I listened to it on the YouTube video again. And I thought, okay, I'm going to keep playing it slow because they blew right through all the cool things that are going on here. And, you know, I'm used to, I'm used to paying attention to these, these neat things that he's doing in it. And you really can't hear it when it's played really fast. And so that was my justification for being a sucky stick player that can't play this thing at, at a decent tempo. But um, so, so, you know, that's, that's my thing, you know, I want to play it fast enough that you can't hear my mistakes really well. They don't dwell, but slow enough that you can hear all these cool things that are going on. Right. I play with feel. I play with feel. <laughs> <laughs> don't rush through this wonderful music. Just savor every note. It was it was a great video. It was a great performance. It was a great recording, and I remember seeing it and knowing that truly this was envy because I had wanted to play the Eighth Invention after having seen it in like a video game when I was like ten <laughs> years old. It was like this old kind of video game console, which is which is why I think it's so funny that you mentioned that you saw you know Bach and in something else, all these classical pieces we know from cartoons and things like that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, really, you really nailed the eighth, and it was and it, it Thanks, is inspiring Gene. to see. I know that Jofflet's played that one as well. I remember yeah. when we when that when Claire and Vic and I found out that he had done it, we were like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, pick another one. <laughs> that guy. There's another there's another Jofflet, you know, yeah. moment. So that guy, you know, I'm sure will he'll he'll be joining us at some point it, soon. It, so it's interesting, like if you search on YouTube, you end up finding a lot of stick box stuff. Mm. Yep. There's a lot of folks that are, are doing it. So But none like Rod Sorrell. I'll tell you. True. So actually, you know, we've been kind of saving you for last. So like spill it. Why Bach? Majesty. <laughs> yeah, well. Huh. Right. <laughs> It's cool. Yeah, it's cool. Now, actually, I, I've got... It's okay. You said something earlier that I kind of stick with me. You said you love the har harpsichord. I hate mm. the sound of that thing. I, really? I have to tell you. I hate the sound nope. of it. I do, You're too. You're ruining everything, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But I, I especially hate Bach on harpsichord. <laughs> I don't like the sound of the instrument. But I do love Bach. It's the, the earliest memory I have of listening to something... Is, is the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. It has this thing of, of having multiple melodies at the same time and everything makes sense. That it just it feels right with me, you know. It touches all the right buttons. So I've since forever I've got this passion of, of doing it. And that led me to the, the wanting to have the experience of just letting my hands go and play something like that, you know. So let the hands do it and enjoy the the physical and the experience of playing Bach. So that's what led me to the stick. Because I am a string guy, I play piano, but the piano doesn't quite cut it with my hands and the feeling, it's just not right. 
you know when when you do something using your body and you recognize it as something that's comfortable and it gives you pleasure versus something that it's really awkward to do so with me and strings having strings beneath my fingers the feel of of strings and modulating a sound with strings it's something that has always been very pleasant uh in terms of 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 the physical experience of fingers on strings whether on piano i don't have that so i love the sound of a piano and i know reasonably well how to play it but it, it just doesn't have this physical recognition of being the right instrument for me so it's it's kind of hard to explain but it's something like this if it makes any sense no no actually it's a tactile thing sounds like yeah exactly yeah, i can relate to that thing. like hitting that like third in the bass and the left hand you're like oh like Exactly. So sound. Gene has it. Gene is Gene is stretching luxuriously right now as yeah, he says this. That, that meaty third in the bass, just like, oh move right on up to the fourth. You're welcome here, right there. You know, so Bach gives me th this thing with the, the, the stick and the stick gives me brings me Bach back into my life. So the ability to do it. And from that on, then on what what I do is well this is very personal but you can use bach as a uh, as a means of as a professional musician you play bach so you got to love the music first of all then you have to you can play bach as a as something you do in concerts because people love to hear it and you like to play it and you can use it as a, something you have fun so it's like playing at home it's very very amateur in the meaning of you love it but it's not being done professionally you can use it as a school and that's All of these things, versions of using box music, I, I tend to use depending on, on which repertoire I'm playing. So, uh, for example, I started with the, the Prelude in C, the first thing I've learned, because apart from being a, a piece I knew rather well, it, it's very simple. So the layout is like you play two notes on the left hand and six notes on the right hand. There are no notes being played at the same time, so it's consecutive notes. And it give, it's all arpeggio, so it gives you the layout of the of the fretboard, and you get the first lights you have of knowing where the notes are, how do chords translate to the stick, all of that you oh, can yeah. you can have just by playing the prelude in C major. So it's a, it's an amazing piece of music, and it it lays the perfect foundations to start an instrument like the stick or the piano for that matter. So you just get the feel of the instrument, everything, just playing those arpeggios back and forth. So it's the perfect tune to start. So I started with that one. And then it depends. You can, for example, I use the, the cello suites, which I've recorded the complete first suite, and I want, intend to play and record all of the suites. It's like 20-minute music, and it's, it's really hard to play 20-minute music without a mistake. But it's at the same time, it gives you such oh, an yeah. amount of, of information about the instrument and how to... Gene, you were saying it makes you a better bass player. It does. It makes you oh. a better everything because you're playing a huge melody, a stretch of melody for 20 minutes, and you have to do it musically using both hands. So it's it's amazing for that. At the same time, you can yeah. go for the the keyboard pieces like the, the the inventions and all that, and then you can have the the two melodies, three melodies at the same time. So it's Bach gives you different tools to develop as a musician has an entertainer and has just and someone that's just having fun for himself doing it. So you can have all those three sides just using Bach's repertoire. So it's... Uh, oh, yeah. I, I can talk know, about Bach for all life. I mean, They are fun, uh, especially like that left hand. I mean, 
you know, I haven't learned a whole lot of Bach pieces, but my left hand is always having so much fun because yeah. of just the way it moves that, you know, the eighth invention is just, you know, all those descending scales all the way through mm. it are just a kick in the pants to play. Once yeah. you figure out how to do the position shifts and, you know, you're playing six descending notes on one string. And so you've got to figure out how to, you know, how to switch positions really quickly in the middle of it. It's very educational, but it's just so fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah. That, that's the ultimate goal, right? The thing I hate about Bach that I hate, and I'll say it out loud, is that when you have to play around in that left hand and you're going from like a B flat to an A and you have to switch to a different gauge string, it just makes me hate Bach. It's because you're like, you have to like, when you're making that switch and you have to like go, you know, you run in a room, like the So right now, as Gene says, his hand is just switching wildly. It's just like, <laughs> well, I have to tell you this. So this is something I've been learning. If you go, particularly for the, for those bass runs, you know, uh, on the left hand, the, the cello suites will give you hints on how to do this more musically and without the jump, with the feeling of the, you know, like you're going from B flat to A and the A just, it's stupidly loud in comparison to the, 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 the cello suites will give you ways to control that and come around it and do it well you have to discover them but that's why i love the solo pieces for for the cello or the violin also mm. that he wrote because that way you can just focus on the little details of one single melody without worrying with you know i have nine fingers on strings and and uh they're all doing different stuff so with that mm. you only have one we can talk about Bach all day. Uh, that's yeah, one of that the, was the, the idea, the, though, right? <laughs> that's one of the things. But depending on the repertoire you go for, it will provide you with a huge insight of what to do, how to do, and how to make it better, and ultimately how to do it in a way that's musical and it's an alternative to traditional instruments. So that's the end game. You want to play it in a way that people will actually want to hear it on on the stick. Not like as a as an anecdote. Oh, this can be played on the stick, but as the version I like best, it's the one played on the Chapman stick. So that's the end game, the ultimate goal, I think. Yeah, and that actually comes in because I really enjoy watching people play the stick. That was what first attracted me to it because it's a really fun instrument to watch someone play. Some of the Bach pieces that are out there, including yours, Rodrigo. You know, I don't have to be watching the video to be enjoying it because the mm. tone of the instrument seems Great to point. fit pretty well. And I can just turn it on the background. I can put it on YouTube and then go to a different video and work on something else that I'm working on and just be listening to it or put it on in my car. You know, in the case of, some, mm. for instance, you know, some of your work uh, on my phone while I'm driving. And, you know, that says something yeah. because I love the stick. I love playing it. I love hearing it and I love watching it. But, uh, it's just as fulfilling to hear some of these Bach pieces on a stick without actually seeing it done. And that says something. Yeah, yeah it's not like a fanboy moment. I was going to say the same thing where like the tone of the instrument, I think, works well. We are saying we like, you know, Rodrigo and I don't love harpsichord, but something about the tone of the stick, I think, works yeah. really well for these pieces. <laughs> and the funny enough, there are a bunch of people that listen to, to Bach music on the stick and they say, well, it reminds me of an harpsichord. And it's it's like and so it's like a good one. You, have you know, to change yeah. subjects, Rodrigo. Sorrell. I'm gonna lose respect <laughs> for you. No, I, I'll only say this. So it's like the and this is this is not beautiful, but 
the, the stick is like the harpsichord made good, you know? So it's like a good version of the harpsichord. It's the stick. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I'm used to dishing it out, so it's good for me to kind of get a little friendly nudge there. <laughs> that we put together and will elaborate on that may be helpful or maybe uh, may offer some sort of kind of guide to approaching the uh, music of Bach on the Chapman stick. And um, we'll kind of elaborate them as we go. But one of, the, one of the things in particular that I found, I do a lot of project management in my life, and that is, is to have a very clear understanding of what you expect to get done and the timeline in which you expect to get it done. And the, the piece for me in particular where I really found this to shine was the Borani minor. And a couple of stickers have done this in the past. So uh, schedule and planning. Um, so setting goals, right? I'm just gonna do four measures, I'm gonna do eight measures. Uh, I've gotta work on this part in the left hand. And um, part of that is has been important to me. Now, when you guys set out to do a piece, do you do, or actually before I get into that, why don't we really quickly look at these seven things? And, and um, we've been kind of gesturing, these are the, the seven fundamentals that we made up on our way to the podcast. <laughs> the, the, the second <laughs> one would be like posture and position. And that just means that you're, you, you've got yourself in, in, in the right position. And that as you go through the piece that you're making sure that you're checking that what you're doing is all conceivable. Another will be documenting the uh, the progress, taking videos, marking up your manuscripts. Uh, a little curious transgression, which is it's a period instrument versus an instrument period. We'll get into that when we get there. Um, dialing in a tone, and I'd love to hear you know Rod's perspective on this, and and you know to what extent do you use compression, reverb, EQ, um, performance, and recording? So I get nervous as heck when I'm playing, and so I have these kind of techniques that I use to kind of control my anxiety. And then finally, building on pieces um, as exercises in continual improvement. So I suppose I could start, uh, Vic and Claire, I know that we had, when we set out to kind of each do an invention, um, did you have any techniques for for just kind of like getting started? Like what's like, was, what was going on in your head in, in terms of getting through a piece from beginning to end? I say I think looking at the piece first of all, understanding the mm -hmm. form, where it's going, the the different parts, mm -hmm. analyzing it. If if you're up for it, knowing the the harmonic structure of it is kind of important. And in that, you'll see there's often repetition and some like a, a phrase you learn in like you know in one section of the piece it's in C and in another section it's in you know, G or whatever, it, it's subtle changes that you can use to your advantage that, oh, I've already learned this, I just need to shift it on the fretboard. Yes. Um, there, there's a lot of that in this kind of music. For me, I think some of these pieces, they, they can get really difficult to work on and really frustrating. And I'm, I'm going to use the Invention 13. I, it was 
it was really frustrating to, to feel like you're not making mm -hmm. progress. So I think having realistic goals of how much you want to try to get to, and if, if you get stuck somewhere, just move on to the next part and come back to it. I'm also a big fan of, um, I, I know it's easy to break stuff down into like measures or double measures or something, but this music works in phrases. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to approach a piece in terms of the phrases. So even if you have to break it down to smaller pieces than a phrase, make sure you go back and that each phrase works as its own idea musically. Sure. sure. Yeah, the part with repetition really makes sense to me. Because there's parts towards like the second after you've played kind of the exposition and you're coming back to it in a different key or something like that. It's like, oh, I got this. I did this like six months ago. You know, it's like, It just transposed. Yeah, that's it. At this yeah. moment, I would like to say anyone that, that's listening to the podcast, just go back 30 seconds, re-listen to all the, what Claire just said, because <laughs> there's a lot of good information there. I mean, it, it is. It, it's, it's it's exactly like that, but as she said it. So. Uh, get it. We should yeah. have written this down. <laughs> anyway, continue. We can we can transcribe it. You know, write it out in a note somewhere. Repetition, patience. Yeah. Be kind to yourself. This mm. stuff can be hard. Yeah. Phrases, sure. yeah. musical phrases. It it works like that. Another thing with the, with when you start looking at the the harmony of the of the piece of the structure, you realize that it's easier to get it to remember what's coming next when you're playing and thinking of what's going to be next if you're if you memorize the, the harmonic progression for example that i mean i was talking with rob about that about prelude he did, just did and we were talking about well first thing we we memorize it's the harmony because that will make it a lot easier to play it because we know that it goes from i don't know it's the two five one so if i'm playing g7 probably it's going to be c minor next so Mm -hmm. What was the fingering for that particular C minor, that inversion? So that kind of gives you uh, an edge, knowing the, the harmonic structure of the, of the piece. So what about as you're, as you're planning out the piece? So, I, you know, I talk about posture. And, you know, when I'm playing Bach for a long period of time, you know, you feel it. If you are moving your wrist in a position that's unnatural or something, Bach is going to surface any sort of bad angle, any sort of bad like angle in your back or something like that, it's going to come right to the front after like a good half hour of practicing. So do you, like Vic, do you have any tech, like I mean, as you were working through the, the eighth, was there anything that you observed, you know, when you had these sessions where you found yourself, you know, having to adjust either your, your lap dog or whether you were standing or sitting? Like, Gene, I have no idea what you're talking about, man. I never had any problems. <laughs> <laughs> you're just on the street playing the stick you and your theory you yeah. and your castle <laughs> your theory castle you look at Vic playing and it, a bunch of, of problems most of us have he doesn't so he has very good posture and very good that's technique true. And well, that's not so, what I was intending to say at all I know so. I know but it's but it's the truth I mean looking at you it's, it's like true. it's like okay so he doesn't he won't develop these kind of issues because you, you, you already have a good posture or good perhaps anything that I managed to do right is because of learning these pieces I can't tell you which is the chicken and which is the egg you know i don't know which came first but uh i can tell you that i think that i've arrived at you know the angle that i hold the instrument at uh, in large part because of the eighth because for me playing the bass side the sweet spot is you know fret seven and below or you know fret seven down to the x fret you know and and when you get above the seventh fret 
the angle of that you're holding the instrument starts to come into play more. And I think on the eighth invention, I think that the high, I think I get up to the 10th fret in a couple of spots, maybe the 11th fret. And, you know, you need to have the instrument just a little more vertically to do that. At least, at least I do at the height that I hold it and stuff like that. So that probably came into play there for me. Cause if, you know, if, if I was holding it like a guitar way down low, you know, that would never happen. So, but uh, yeah. yeah, I can't really that's speak to point. that. I'm, I'm sitting here taking notes from what you guys are all saying. But that's a good point though, is like generally left hands playing seventh fret and below and on a 12 string instrument in particular, you know, you can, you've got some, some room to work with. Yeah. Um, another kind of bit that I've noticed, certainly with Bach, well, it depends whether you're playing a minuet or an invention, is that generally the right hand is moving up and down and the left hand is moving from left to right. And that is because you're kind of working with the fourths and the fifths tuning. And once you really embrace that, you know, I found that I watch my left hand a lot. So I just kind of trust that the right hand knows what it's doing and it's just kind of playing yeah. patterns and scales yeah, and chords exactly and it's really natural. But it's like all, if I'm watching where I'm playing and often I'm guilty of this, it's all eyes on the left hand. And it's just, I love watching it and thinking it knows what it's doing. But the moment I stop to think about it, you know, it's like, ah. That's kind of a, an interesting thing that, you know, as I've struggled through being able to play, you know, uh, something like the Eighth Invention all the way through. And, you know, I keep talking about the Eighth Invention because that's really all I've got right now. But I'm watching my left hand for the most part, but there are key points in it where I glance at my right hand just long enough to make sure I hit that note. And then, you know, and then I'm over and it's interesting. There's like three places in that where I make it a point. Okay. At this note, I need to watch. I need to watch that because I'm changing positions. I'm, I'm, or I'm doing some kind of a, a crossover on my, on my right hand or something. I just, I, once I hit that note, I'm good. Uh, and so it is kind of interesting that I've got these little inflection points where my eyes, you know, dive down to the right hand and watch it. That's a great point, Vic. Because because I've thought about this in the past, and I'm glad that you're making that point. And that is is that a great technique is to is to look at if you need to look down is to look at both hands, you know, when you need it, and and it's just like getting a cue from another hand or something like that. Like if you're like a, an actor, you need like line, you know, it's like you you know they, you call out the line, and you're able to kind of identify with what's going on. I, I think part of that too is. Um learning not to look at your hands, um, practicing that. Um, I think that comes into play when you're trying to perform it. Yeah, great point. I think a lot of these pieces, uh, like inventions and, and those minuets specifically with all, all the, the movement that goes on, you have to have these pieces in your muscle memory mm-hmm. in order to perform them live, at least for me. So I think practicing, you know, you, you do get a lot of movement in the left hand because of those fifths. And I think for me, I, I practice when, when I have to make like a jump, mm-hmm. I practice that repeatedly. You have to trust that your hand's going to go to the right place without looking yeah. at it. And I, I think that's, that becomes more important as you prep to, to perform it. Cause when, when you're like stressing out about being in front of people, like that's what starts to go is like, you, you can't be thinking about what you're playing. Yeah. Your hands just have to know it. And they have to know it. Yeah whether you're sitting in the in the right chair or the wrong chair so stuff like that changes your relation towards the the instrument so you have to do yeah. it with different chairs if you play seated like I do or with 
different heights with a stick or you know stuff like that because the movement is becomes automatic but it becomes automatic under one circumstance you have to do it for, for a whole bunch of them you're talking like a musician like like that is like you know being able to like the, the monitor mix is too high in the left hand or there's reverb coming back <laughs> it's just like you know a musician just is able to adapt and to pr and deliver the product you know well you have to do it because it's particularly with a stick if something like that pops into your mind when you're playing live then you're going for for, for the train right it's too late it's <laughs> you should have done it you know weeks before not on stage so another good thing for example when i play the beret or i play any of the minuets my eyes tend to go to the left hand also so the mm. the jumping it's something that the, the eyes will tend to go there uh but eventually what claire said is it's what i aim for which is do not look at the hands because the only way you can actually keep track of both hands is if you don't look at e either of them so <laughs> that way you can if you can imagine both no hands, hands in your brain right? but yeah. you can only look at one of them at, at a time so if you don't look at any or if you close your eyes or whatever and you can't visualize the whole thing then it becomes a lot easier and controlled because you can imagine what you're doing and the, and the hands will do the way you think it should be done instead of uh, uh, the way you can actually do it. I don't know if it, this makes any sense, but that makes your imagination sense. is always better than your technique. So, yeah, well, the, 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 the intent yeah. is the most evolved form is, is to not is to not have to be dependent on on vision to play something that you're listening exactly. to. It's a weird thing. I, I feel like you see both of your hands better in your mind's mm. eye. Like if you're able to get to the point where you close your eyes, you can visualize your hands and you see both of them and you know kind of where they are. And like once you're at that point, like things go better. Yeah, that's that's when you think, okay, <laughs> maybe I could start doing a video and then all hell breaks loose again and <laughs> you hit rec the record button and it's like, huh, what? Yeah, <laughs> red light syndrome. One other thing I, I would like to point out, especially again with this, the the two part stuff, the box. Like if you're looking at the minuets or the inventions, uh, most of them are two parts. Practice each hand separately. Mm. Know the melodies. Know they, they are actually beautiful separately. Mm. They're written that way, and know it throughout. Be able to play either hand starting from any mm. point, and that'll avoid train wrecks. Because if if you only learn the piece as like each note in relation to the other hand, you're never going to be able to perform yeah. it. You have to understand the piece as two separate lines. Yeah. It's a study. Throughout. Yeah. Great point. You sometimes have to break it down to like, okay, I'm playing this note now, and now I'm playing this note in both hands. And that's, that's a great way to get going. You have to get to a point where you can think in the lines and not the individual notes. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Because if you do it the other way around, this is me just thinking, if you learn you start doing both hands at the same time, so you're learning one hand in relation to the other. By the time it becomes muscle memory, then your attention can start focusing on, on each melody, on whatever you want to do. What I mean is when you get to know really well uh, the piece you're playing, you your hands tend to do it naturally, automatically, instead of... Because I never did learn anything one hand and then the other. I don't know how to do them separately. For example, I'm playing this piece now I'm working on, which has a very, very busy bass side left hand and a very simple melody, but it has some chords also on the, on the right hand. So my right hand is playing melody and chords, and I have to separate those chords from the melody, although they're being done by the same hand. And 
as the muscle memory becomes very evolved, you start to do it naturally because you're imagining the music and the hands will do it like that. So it comes out like that, that way. So you start, you're separating things, but again, it's, it's your imagination leading your hands to do it instead of, if I look at my hands, then everything becomes, I know, no difference between the, the accompaniment and the melody. If it's the other way around, if I'm just imagining the music and playing it, it becomes separate. Does this make mm -hmm. any sense to you guys? I think it makes sense. My, my suggestion was make sure you don't not do that at some point. I, I'm not saying like only ever work on each hand separately and then try to put them together. I, I don't suggest that as a way of learning these pieces. Um, I think you just have to know to do okay. various ways of learning it. Like do, do the one note against each other, but also make sure you're learning the line separately. And I think it'll depend on the person and the piece and in, into how, at what part of the piece you can do either piece of it. My point was it's important to know that these are beautiful lines on their own and that's what's important. And whether whether that comes from learning it and then that evolves to it, great, as long as it's happening at some yeah. point. And I'm not suggesting to just learn like only ever work on the right hand and then only ever work. That that I don't think would work eventually. I, I think that'll take a lot longer. Rob Gellner gave me, this is actually important. As he was playing this, the, um, the prelude in C minor, the, the BWV 999, this last one, one of the days he, he wrote me an email and he said, have you ever tried muting the left hand and just and playing the whole piece, but one hand muted? So you just mute the bass side of the instrument. Mm -hmm. What does it make you feel like? And I tried it and it's amazing the way you react to not having that audible information, but the hands are doing the right movement. It becomes so much clear what you have to do because then it's just your imagination playing the music and half of it is there and the other half is not so everything becomes very much apparent you know what each one is doing but especially it improves a lot by big jumps the 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 expression of what in this case the left hand because you do it you know you imagine the sound and you do it for like two times the same song then you put the, the sound back on and you start playing and it's like, whoa, this sounds a lot better than it just did 20 minutes ago. So yeah. uh, it's kind of like the same thing, which is when you learn how to, how to separate different melodies and whatever each hand is doing, and at the same time, let your guide be your, your, what you hear in your mind, not what you're hearing from the instrument. Hmm. Yeah. I haven't tried that technique. I'll have to I try have that. Really. I guess I think that piece in particular is very, I mean, the hands, it's less of like two melodies together. It's really intertwined, I think, that piece. Yeah, it's it's like arpeggios back and forth. So it, it'd be tough to, to try that approach of like one hand only, right, in, in that particular case. But I did. He said it and I tried it with the same piece, with the, with that prelude. And it, it's amazing how, how much you can gain from doing this silly thing, which is mute one side of the instrument and see how it makes you feel. Well, I'm going to have to give that a try now. You, you should try. I, I did. He came up with this and I thought, well, I'm going to do it. Why not? Yeah, and it's cool. like, whoa, that's really, really, really cool. <laughs> yeah. So shout I, out to Rob Gellner for figuring this out. Now, what about documenting it? Do you guys do you guys have something written out that you write up as you go? No, Rodrigo's about I'm not to show us. As I say, per personally, I, I grab the music and yeah, I write okay. in like fret numbers. Yeah, okay, like good. as I'm working through it. Ooh, detailed notes. I take note of everything I do. <laughs> then I record in video, and I write the scores. So gotcha. everything is yeah. very well documented. 
Now, every once in a while, I do like to make a video of myself and then listen to it separately because, you know, you never actually sound as good as you think you do while <laughs> you're playing something. And so, you know, every few weeks you make a video of yourself and you realize, wow, those are buzzy <laughs> notes or, you know, it's kind of right up there with trying to play it dry instead of with reverb or with EQ or compression and you play it dry and and you realize wow I'm really not playing it as well as I think I sound like well video is kind of the yeah. same way it's good to have a reference yeah of course sometimes it's discouraging because when I watch myself play something on video I'm really having a great time but you know I really wish I could have a happier expression <laughs> on my face <laughs> see I, I do audio recordings because they, they kind of give you the benefit of being able to listen to yourself without the tension on your playing and I don't have to look at myself. Plus I think it's an easy way to document. Like I'll, I'll have like a DAW and I'll have each track is like a piece I'm working on and I'll just do a new clip. I, I usually do this in Ableton or something, but I'll have a new clip, like, I don't know, maybe once a week or how, however is a regular interval. And the cool thing about that is you have, you know, if you're having a particularly rough week, you can go back to like a month ago and listen to where you were and actually hear that you've made progress. So it's kind of a, it's a good way to like, Reminds yourself that you are making progress. Yeah, it's important to do, especially yeah. if something is structured as a Bach piece. Um, the fourth item that I had was, you know, the fact that you know we we kind of beat up on the harpsichord pretty good, which is actually you know <laughs> makes it makes me smile. But uh, you know, it is the harpsichord is a period instrument, and we're interpreting music on an instrument. Uh, and it's, you know, he also wrote for the organ. Um, he wrote for a number of different uh, instruments, actually. He actually killed the organ, you know? Literally, yeah. literally Bach, he just put it into a level nobody else could do it after him. So he basically just killed the instrument because no one could do what he did after him. So And he built them, right? I mean, he, he'd walk into a church and the, the people that were like minding the church and minding the organ itself were like, oh no, this guy's here. Yeah, he, was, he, would, he would do visits and he would uh, comment on the instruments being built. He was he, he was the biggest virtuoso on the, of the organ. Actually, there's this another thing about Bach, which the, the whole thing with the, the keyboards and the use of thumbs hmm. on a keyboard is something Bach came up with. So before him, the the fingers were, were used on on the organs to change the registers and stuff like that, not to play actual keys. So the whole piano technique, modern piano technique, keyboard technique, uh, was put on a book by his son, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, according to his father's in, uh, adaptations and inventions. So uh, the importance of Bach in keyboard technique is immense, you know. So, yeah. uh, But he, his instrument of choice was, was clearly the, the organ. Sorry. Oh, talk. yeah. Well, and also it was, it was a time in music, and I remember reading about it, that the, the emphasis was on, on the message, right? Like, you know, there was a Baptist... Lutheran? Lutheran, that's right, Luther. And so Luther Luther was very enthusiastic about music. And he's like, no, you know, this is the glory of his faith, and that's okay to let the music take precedent, and that is part of the message. And they're, we're not trying to separate them. When I was reading about Bach, it was like, they were like, no, let Ehrmeister Bach just unhinged, just let him go for it, you know? And people came. They wanted to see this, and they wanted to believe, and they wanted to share in his vision. Yeah, he kind of wrote these things as an act of worship, basically. An act of worship, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I know also that at that period in time, there, there's these great stories about how he was working with the choir. And uh, 
it's all kind of volunteer stuff. You know, you, you don't really, you're not paying these people anything. You know, they kind of show up for the free spaghetti maybe. And there's other people that really are like they're working and, you know, cleaning up and taking care of things. You've got these varying levels of interest. But, um, you know, he'd be like, okay, thank you. And then he'd kind of do his thing, you know, and he'd you know, write these kind of easy parts for the choir to come in. And so he was, you know, very much like Shakespeare. He kind of worked with what he had, you know, he had these actors, they would show up late. So his lines, you know, the, he doesn't introduce these characters until later in the play, or uh, he wrote things, you know, like Shakespeare wrote stage directions into the music um, where, you know, yonder he enters from the West, you know, which kind of cues the, the people on that side of the stage to come in, you know, so <laughs> he, he had all these motifs that were, that he was like writing for the choir that he was working with. So a very clever, you know, musician. It's kind of like that thing Roddick gets back to, you know, like maybe the chair's too high, maybe the chair's too low. Maybe it creaks when you move on it, you know, like all these different things that you just have to deal with in the moment. He was truly inspired. <laughs> Um, so my my point of all of this was is that on the Chapman stick in particular, there's a lot of different ways to play a trill, an appoggiatura, or these various different motifs where you're pulling off, or you're whether you're playing a C D C D C D C or whether it's played as D C D C D C D C. And then when I look at the way these scores are written, I don't put too much emphasis on it simply because I'm more focused on just the math of it and learning the piece and playing it with passion. All right. Nothing? You guys have nothing? That's it? Nothing to add. <laughs> I mean, look at the fourth invention, right? Like there's this whole part where you're, you're like you're holding it apart and you're, you're hammering apart. And so it's, I suppose, and I had conversations with Greg about this, you know, when you, especially when you write these things out, you know, like how do you score this sort of thing, you know, for an instrument that's not a period instrument? You know, it's very different. There's so much less energy involved on like a harpsichord when you're playing CD, 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 or A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. Whereas on the stick, you want to, at least in the right hand, you want to play that, if you're playing A to B, you want to play that A first. But depending on the type of appoggiatura or trill that he's using, it's actually played, so it starts with the B. And so the energy comes from a different place. And it's not really natural to play the B first and then hammer off to the A because it's not as easy to do. And I kind of give it a pass, you know, I just kind of be like, yeah, I'm going to do the best I can. It's that whole kind of self-worth thing where I'm like, you're doing great, Gene. You learn this Bach piece and it's <laughs> very difficult. So you just, you know, I know it's written this way and there's all these squiggly lines going on on the score, but you just do the best you can. And so that's kind of how I've taken, that's been my approach. It's interesting that like Rodrigo was saying, you know, the, the difference between a piano or a harpsichord, um, you don't have vibrato on those instruments and you have vibrato on a on a stick. I find myself actually adding vibrato mm. sometimes, which you definitely wouldn't do on a piano. Um, I think as far as all those little, you know, the the, the ornaments and stuff, I, I think, I mean, a lot of the music will try to lay it out. Um, it's usually piano music, right? So I think it's important. I, I What I do a lot, if I'm trying to play a piece of, let's say a classically notated piece, I will seek out I'll go listen to a bunch of stuff, try to find different performers and I will listen to them and I will find one that I really resonate with and I will try to play like that. Um, I think there's so many recordings out now that it's it's easy to find something you like and then just go for that. And I, and I think with the ornaments, you have to obviously, you're not going to play with the fingerings they show on your piano music. So I think you really have to think through like, how am I approaching this melodic section and how am I going to do this little this little trill? How am I going to, where do I start it? Where do I end it? What fingers do I need to use? You, you definitely have to kind of figure that out on your own because you can't, you can't look at the music because it's going to be 
I mean, maybe it'll work, but usually probably yeah. not. That's all part of the puzzle. It is, it is. It is a part of what you're trying to do, which is offer an alternative version of the, of the, that piece. So if Bach wrote a trill in this particular place, I'm going to play it, but I'm going to play it and I'm going to find a way to do it that it sounds actually good, you know? So it might not be exactly as it was written for the keyboard, but it has to be there. It has to sound good. First of all, you have to figure out what's the point of this thing being here. So you have to figure it out why. Then after the why, you have to figure out a way to do it so that it fulfills its reason. And so it's kind of like the whole thing evolves in time until you reach to, to a point where you say, I would like to hear this. If I was listening to this piece of music, I would like to listen to this here. So that's the final objective, I think. Yeah, to make it musical. Everyone will have a personal take on it and it will sound different for even a, a classical piano player will do a trill and it will sound different for everyone so it's it's not exactly the same thing forever it's that's a fun part of music it's different whatever whoever's playing it so right you get to kind of make it your own in the manuscript mm -hmm. that i had for the two-part inventions there's literally six pages on like how to interpret how he's written these trills and these ornaments as claire mentioned and i just thought um and they show it you know and they're like these 30 second notes And there's like four different lines that I'm looking at. And I'm like, those all look the same to me. I don't know what they're talking about. You know? <laughs> and now they're dotting things. And, and, you know, for me, like I'm like kind of city college music level degree, you know, and I did okay. And I did my time on the choir and the percussion section. But um, I think what I need to do is, is focus on that musicality. And this is my version of it. And um, not get too hung up in... Um, what the learned box scholar says, even though, you know, obviously we roll out the red carpet for them. We have great respect for them because they're preserving this music and there's, there's organizations and institutions devoted to providing that sort of thing, which is why I think he uses, there's like a different naming convention for his music. So like, like BWV and things like that, those all stand for an organization that are like charged with ensuring that his legacy continues and that these pieces are numbered accordingly and in order. Yeah. So the kind of next up is tone. So thoughts on compression, EQ, or um, just like recording techniques, I guess. Uh, like who's got them? Claire? <laughs> I, um, I think the main thing I will say is, um, and this is personal taste, but I'm, I'm a big fan of just as you're learning the piece, don't really add anything to it. I mean, get a tone you like and... Um, probably a little reverb because it sounds nice, but I think as you're working on the piece, make sure that your playing is what creates the tone. Um, if you're relying on reverb to do sustains, then I'm not a fan of that approach. I think you have to work on, you have to really listen sure. to what you're doing. Notes have a an on and an off. And I think, I think being able to play a piece sounding the way you like it with your technique is important. And if you want to add anything else after that, go for it. Yeah. I think... Victor mentioned this, which is uh, practice without reverb. And actually, for me, I kind of look at it like this also, which is you play it and you have the physical, the tactile feeling of, of playing those notes and expressing the music through the tactile use of your hands. And uh, everything else comes after. I mean, for, I don't use compression. I just use a little bit of reverb on my, my stick tone. 
But if I'm recording it after the recording, then I will go for, for the whole normal thing, which is EQing again, uh, different reverb, a very good one this time, and uh, compression also. So I have the whole post-production thing, I will put a bunch of things in the tone, which is what I do usually in my uh, day job as a sound engineer. But as I'm playing or as I'm performing live, it's just the fingers and, uh, and uh, whatever reverb I'm using at the preset I, I use. But I think Victor's right. You should, at some point, always go for the unreverbed version of it and see how it goes and work with it. If it sounds good without reverb, it'll sound amazing with it. So hmm. I don't even plug in. I mean, so a lot of times, you know, if it's too early and I'm in the apartment here, I just won't even plug in. So it's a much more kind of personal experience. And, um, you know, people have different opinions about that. I remember reading a little bit about that on the forums about, you know, not plugging in. But for me, it's a good exercise just because it gives it a kind of an acoustic quality. And then when you do plug it in, you're like, well, this is easy, you know? So it's kind of like if you've ever seen like, you know, in, in baseball, you know, they put that little donut on the bat so that it feels kind of heavy. And then when they do actually go to bat, you know, like, hey, it feels really light. So I suppose that's kind of the, there's my, there's Gene's analogy corner for you. Uh, yeah. Stick. Yeah, <laughs> well, we have Legos, five. and now we have baseball-weighted uh, rings. The That's donut. good. That's good. It is because, you know, if you're playing dry, you're going to sound like you're actually playing, and then, then when it comes time to perform it, or whether you're performing just for yourself or the cat or an audience, then, you know, you add the reverb, and it kind of yeah. gives you a little bit of confidence uh, at that point as well. But, yeah, it is weird. You know, you're playing with reverb as a practice habit, and then I shouldn't say you. I'm playing with reverb as a practice habit and then I'll think I'm doing all right and then I'll play it dry and I'll realize, wow, you are, mm. you're not really hitting right behind the fret on a lot of these notes. There's buzz that's being hidden by the sure. reverb, you know, and sometimes there's thunks that are being spread out by the reverb and so they're not as sharp of an attack. And yeah, it is. It is interesting. It's a humbling experience to go from practicing with yeah. reverb all the time to practicing yeah. dry. Plus, you know, when you play Bach, it sets the mood for the whole piece. For example, uh, you have the minuet in G minor, which is very similar to the G major, but you just start with a, a G on the left hand and a B flat on the right hand. So it's the minor third, right? Which it's the tenth actually, but it's just these two notes, which is the tonic and the third. And if if you play them right, those two notes, it sets the tone for the whole piece because if the stick is in tune and it has a, a beautiful tone and you just add a little bit of vibrato to the, the, the third, it's so beautiful that what develops from there, it's just music and again, it's just in the fingers, it's the tone that you're producing, not so much uh, what the machine is doing, but what your fingers are doing with those strings. So it's, uh, it's really beautiful, actually. Wow, that's kind of like wanting to get your first tee shot right when you go golfing sets the tone for the whole it, round. Well done. There we go, Gene. <laughs> You're not the only one that can throw an analogy out there. Well done, lad. Low <laughs> way. I like a golf clap, yeah. Um, you know, uh, a way of thinking about it, as we were talking about it, is thinking of the reverb as a, as a whole separate instrument or like a third hand. And I think that the job that, that Rob Gellner did was perfect. I mean, he put the reverb on two separate tracks, and it was though they were... It was like four channels, you know, it was like left side, right side, but also, you know, the left side and the right side with the reverb. 
Um, so you had the left side and the right side of the instrument, and the left side and the right side with the reverb. And he did such a, I believe that his choice of reverb only accentuated the music. And you could tell that he was up and underneath the performance, the you know the way he had rehearsed it, the way he had realized it. It wasn't like some sort of shtick or smoke and mirrors. It really was a, a beautiful performance with a delicious tone that I really enjoyed listening to. So we're almost at time, and we did talk a little bit about performance and recording, but I suppose what I, maybe what we can close with is um, building on the pieces as exercises and continual improvement. And so I'll start with a really quick bit, and uh, you, you can all kind of take your bit here, and then Vic can kind of take us out. But um, yeah, so maybe Vic, you can kind of close out if that's all right. Sure. So one of the things, it, and it happened so quickly when I was working on actually the minuet in G minor, minuet number one in G minor, which is da 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 da. So Claire had played this, and I had really enjoyed it, and I learned it, and you know I saw her use this simple like minor third on the left hand. And what's so great about the left hand of the Chapman stick is it it's up a whole octave. It's not just like on a piano where you're playing an A and a C sharp, or in this case, a G and a B flat, but you get that 10th quality, right? So it's very pleasing to listen to because your third is up higher where it belongs or what we expect to hear like in the choir, let's say. And so it was this, um, she did it so naturally and I was like, wow, you can, it's so easy to build on these things that you know and these runs where you're playing quarter notes, how easy it is to add harmony, even if it's a unison, um, of what's being played on the right hand or something that the right hand is playing against while it's playing. So continual improvement, adding thirds in the left hand or more fully realizing a note in the left hand, is, which is something that I found with Bach that I truly enjoy because it allows me to kind of build on the piece as an exercise. Uh, Claire, do you have anything that you want to add before we call it a day? Um, I think just play stuff you enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Rodrigo, final words of wisdom? I won't add anything to that. Top that, Rodrigo Surau. <laughs> I can't add anything to that. Just play what you what you uh, love. I mean, yeah, that's that's the whole yeah. thing. The final words on Bach is there's a bunch of reasons why he's considered the, the father of Western music, so has the biggest figure in Western music history. There's a bunch of reasons for that. But apart from all of it, if you actually enjoy uh, listening to Bach, it's even a bigger pleasure to just once all these things come together and your your, your muscle memory uh, is advanced enough with a certain piece that you just can you know start playing it and didn't forget about it and listen to what you played. The pleasure of doing of being able to do this it's uh, something that most people don't have and it's like it's how you say it. It's something that I'm truly thankful for, which is the opportunity to play something that, that's that wonderful and after months of work you don't even have to think about what you're doing because the hands will do it for you so it's uh, help me out guys there's, there's a word for this no that's perfect joie de vivre you know just uh, enjoying and, and understanding the mechanics behind of what it feels like what it looks like and what it takes to play this music that was written as part of worship you know, so it truly encompasses what it's set out to do. Yeah. Okay, well, with that, I think we're going to close this one out. So we hope that sometime in the next day or so, you've got a chance to pick up your instrument and play for a while. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye.
Goodbye. Your comments. You can contact us by email at tapintimepodcast at gmail.com.